This is episode 006 with Scott Carney on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. How many push-ups can you do on a single breath? My guest today, Scott Carney, best-selling author of the newly released book, What Doesn't Kill Us, could only do 20 push-ups before his training with Wim, the Iceman Hoff. During this time, Scott learned to control his body temperature and seek out the knowledge that was key to unlocking his body's hidden potential. Since then, Scott has trained with elite athletes, competed in the world's most notorious cold-weather obstacle course race, and summited Gilman's Point on Mount Kilimanjaro in nothing but a pair of shorts. In today's episode, I talk with Scott as he shares how freezing water, extreme altitude, and environmental conditioning can renew our lost evolutionary strength. In today's episode, you'll learn how Scott lost 7 pounds in 7 days, the quickest and safest way to build what Scott calls the wedge, and Scott's personal 15-minute breathing routine, and much, much more. Investigative journalist and anthropologist Scott Carney has worked in some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world. His work blends narrative nonfiction with ethnography. Currently, he is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and a 2016-17 Scripps Fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism in Boulder, Colorado. What Doesn't Kill Us is his most recent book. Other works include The Red Market and A Death on Diamond Mountain. Carney was a contributing editor at Wired for five years, and his writing also appears in Mother Jones, Men's Journal, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Discover, Outside, and Fast Company. His work has been the subject of a variety of radio and television programs, including on NPR and National Geographic TV. 2010, he won the Payne Award for Ethics and Journalism for his story, Meet the Parents, which tracked an international kidnapping to adoption ring. Carney has spent an extensive time in South Asia and speaks Hindi. Welcome, Scott. I'm super grateful that you're here to join us today on Ancestral Health Radio. Great. Thanks for having me. I sound so much more impressive than I actually am. I love it. <laughs> hey, uh, well, all I got to say is that what you're going to speak about today is going to absolutely resonate with our audience, and they're going to get a lot from it. This is going to be something I feel is going to be a, somewhat of a reference material for some of the work that uh, that you're doing, and that uh, Vim, I'm pretty sure... Uh, Wim. The, I, Wim. So it's, it is Wim, because I've heard it said a couple different ways, Wim and then Vim by a couple other people. So No, it's, it's, it's Wim, I uh, promise you. Okay, and I believe you. All right, well, um, <laughs> so Scott, uh, what exactly led you into writing this book to begin with? Maybe people want to get a little bit of the background into uh, how you got engaged with Wim in the first place. So you know, I started, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training uh, and I've taken those skills to be an investigative journalist. And, you know, my history uh, involves writing lots of, of articles and books, being very skeptical of meditation and and uh, spiritual uh, paths that can end up being 
all encompassing for people and make people go crazy and sometimes kill themselves and do some really horrible things, which is not usually what we think about when we think about the spiritual path. Right. Uh, uh, but there's a, there's this whole uh, sort of epidemic that happens with people who get like crazy involved with meditation uh, traditions and lose touch with reality. And it's, it's the same thing you see with any religious fanatic in any uh, religious tradition is that people can get totally um, – you know, lose touch with reality in pursuit of spiritual goals. And I had just written a book called The Death on Diamond Mountain, where I traced the uh, life of one guy um, who ended up meditating to death in the mountains of Arizona underneath the tutelage of a Tibetan, sort of an American Tibetan guru, sort of an American who wears the red robes of a Tibetan, mm -hmm. uh, but and teaches this sort of uh, type of Buddhism, which is, is it mixes the, uh, you know, sort of, notions of Christianity with, uh, with Buddhism, it becomes a very toxic and dangerous mix. Um, so, but one of the things this guy was claiming, this guru was claiming was, uh, that he could teach people superpowers. And, and the guy I was writing the book about Ian Thorson believed that through meditation, he would essentially become an angel, essentially be able to perform, uh, miracles or what in the yogic tradition are called siddhis, which means like walking on water or, you know, being able to walk through walls or levitate. It, it, and, and it, and for Americans and many Westerners, the, the lure of being able to perform miracles is something that, that is sort of deeply ingrained in our childhoods and the stories we, we, we grew up with, you know, we grew up, you know, I grew up, you know, looking at Luke Skywalker and, and Batman and mm -hmm. Superman. And, and you have these mm -hmm. ideas that, you know, when you think about Batman, where did he in the first, you know, the dark Knight? you know, where did he learn to become the badass bat that he was, that he became Tibet? He mm -hmm. was, he was walking through the snowy fields of Tibet and studied with some Asian master and came back this, you know, this superhero. And, and this is, this is a, 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 a trope that has recurred throughout Western history, going back to the probably 1600s, maybe a little bit earlier than that, where, where the East was always where, where we had these unknowable, um, uh, you know, people with magic powers and that if only we reached them, we would be able to learn those, those techniques ourselves. And, and it, it goes through literature. Sherlock Holmes did it, you know, and like so many of our current heroes do this. So when I heard about Wim Hof, and knowing that, that, that people get caught up in this idea of superpowers, I was shocked because what he claimed was to be able to consciously control his body temperature, consciously control his immune system, and be able to do like feats of endurance that just seemed impossible. They seemed superhuman, like, like surviving in ice water for like 100 minutes at a time or hiking up Mount Everest in just a pair of shorts. Uh, and you know he'd pref he, he he didn't get all the way up to it, no, no, but he got three quarters of the way up into this so-called death zone, and he's wearing nothing. It's amazing, and and so I knew he had done these feats. But the thing that worried me was that he was claiming that he could teach other people to do this too, and other people are going to follow in his footsteps. And I was sure he was going to get people killed. Just a hundred percent sure that that these claims are dangerous claims to make. So I went out to meet him in Poland with a commission from Playboy magazine. Uh, to sort of debunk the guru, just like I had in the previous book. But I got there and, you know, initially I'm not impressed. You know, he, he's a sort of like, you know, uh, ruddy looking sort of short guy wearing like this elfin cap. Mm -hmm. um, it smelled too great. You know, he was, he was not uh, uh, at, at first a blush, someone that I thought was going to be 
you know, all that impressive. He wasn't picturesque, uh, right? He didn't fit the image of a guru that you had expected. Right. And, and to some degree, he still doesn't, but we'll get to that shortly. Um, and we, so, but I went to, I went to his training center in Poland, uh, you know, and this is in the dead of the winter. This is the winter that stopped the Nazis. This is the winter that stopped Napoleon. And he, he starts teaching me this method because, you know, as an anthropologist, I, and as an, a journalist, I believe that you have to give people a shot. You don't just go in there and rip them down uh, without, you know, seeing what 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 their claims really are. I just figured the claims would fall apart. Uh, but the first thing we did was to learn his breathing method. And and the Wim Hof method is two things: it's cold exposure and and breathing. And and that's those are the the heart. That's like ninety percent of of the of what you do. He taught me this breathing method and. He said that if I hyperventilate and hold my breath and hyperventilate and hold my breath and hyperventilate and hold my breath, I would be able to hold my breath a lot longer than I had ever anticipated. But more than that, that I would double the number of push-ups that I could normally do. You know, I'm a pretty normal guy, you know, not a super athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I knew before I went there, I could do 20 push-ups before I was like done. And, uh, and you know, there are certainly people listening to this podcast who could do many more, but that's where I was. And, and I did his breathing method. And then at the end of it, you exhale all the air from your lungs and then you start doing push-ups. and I did 40 push-ups without breathing. And that doubled the number that I had. And I was like, Whoa, this guy doubled my physical ability that I had no, you know, that I, that I had a baseline for. And he did it in the matter of like an hour. And that was really, really cool to me. And then the other thing that he did was, was is there's this cold exposure part of it where, you know, you go stand out in the snow and you just sort of get used to standing on the snow and you suppress certain autonomic um, processes in your body consciously and you suppress shivering, uh, which is a very easy mental trick to do. You just say, don't shiver. And so we stood in the snow and the first day I could handle five minutes before I was done. I was like, this is too, this painful feet are burning going inside. Uh, but he said, that's fine. That's what normally happens. People normally feel pain uh, when you start this but the next day we were doing the same routines the breathing and the the ice and the breathing in the ice and we're jumping into some some icy water here and there but the next day i could do 10 minutes before the same thing happened and the next day it was 30 minutes and by the end of the week i was standing in the snow for an hour in just my bathing suit and bare feet for an hour sweating wow and and sort of unlocking sort of an evolutionary ability that we had and 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 he did it quick in such like, a short amount of time, a week. And, and, you know, we finished that, that trip with a hike up a Polish mountain ski slope called Mount Snezka. Uh, and I was eight hours on this mountain. It was two degrees Fahrenheit and I was sweating all the way to the top. And I was, again, I was just in, in a bathing suit and I had hiking boots on and maybe I had a hat on, but like That's not very much. Uh, and so that, so, you know, that really began my investigation and began my interest in Wim and he turned my mind around about it. Like, you know, he made a claim and he, and, and, and he proved that he could do this stuff. And I went from a guy living in Long Beach, California amid palm trees and like constant 80 degree weather to a guy who was able to withstand the Polish winter in my bathing suit. And, and that was really, really cool. Within a week. Which is Within a which week. is astonishing, and I lost seven pounds of fat. This is like the the side bonus to this whole thing is I lost a ton of weight doing it. I was eating like pierogies and Polish food the whole time. So so during this, um, after you actually experienced this for yourself, 
uh, and I guess you could say you you sipped on the Wim Hof Kool Aid. What switched in your in your mind? We, obviously, it doesn't sound like you were fully convinced. You needed a little bit more, but but afterwards, uh, did were you, did you start immediately looking into research on cold or what the benefits of that were, or, or how were you going to try and move forward with uh, trying to I guess debunk the charlatan of Wim Hof? Well, once I saw that things were working, I very quickly said, okay, I'm giving this more of a shot. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm a very open-minded person. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to see where things go. And, and it didn't, it doesn't take long to say, Hey, this is really cool. Like, Hey, this is something really great. Now it, you know, Wim will make some claims that are bigger than what his method is able to do. And if you sit and you talk with him, he, he's, he's sort of a crazy guy. He's rambling. He's disorganized. He'll make grandiose claims, um, frequently and, 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 and things that you can sort of shrug off. He's like, he'll say things like this can cure cancer. This can cure AIDS. This can cure uh, a number of conditions that, that frankly, I don't think there's any evidence for now. Right. He may, he may be able to prove this later. You know, who knows? I, I, you know, I, I've been proven wrong in the past, but, but his claims are so far ahead of where the science is that, that I still remain skeptical of some of the larger implications uh, uh, and, and claims for what the method does. But some of the basic ones were immediately obvious uh, that, that they worked. So when you were doing this, you, you weren't alone. Right. So you, you did this with, um, you know, not only Wim, but also with a, a few other people or, or a couple other gentlemen, I, I believe I read. Yeah, in the like, book. like three or four people were there other than Wim and I. Yeah. OK. And, you know, I'm curious because uh, my father, uh, he passed away, but he had Parkinson's. And I think yes. I read that um, one of the gentlemen who was actually doing this also had Parkinson's disease. And, and I'm not sure if you kept up with him, but if if he's still doing that, I personally, I would love to know whether or not uh, the cold exposure, uh, Wim's breathing method had any effect on that. Uh, and it, it appears that it did. Now, again, when we talk about case studies around the Wim Hof method, we have to acknowledge first that they're case studies with a very small sample. Mm-hmm. And also the people that I meet around this community are the ones who are the success stories because the ones who drop out after a day are not going to be around. Right. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a bit of a sampling, um, smallness here. However, that that being said, uh, it really does appear that the Wim Hof method is 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 beneficial for anyone suffering from an autoimmune disease, an illness where your body attacks itself. And and, you know, I think we'll get we can get into the reasons for that um, if you want to do that first. But but we can also just say that I met people who were able to reverse rheumatoid arthritis, people who were able to reverse Crohn's disease, people who were able to accelerate the healing process on broken bones, wow. and people, uh, and this one guy, um, uh, Hans Spans, who was the man that you're talking about, in, 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 he actually comes up twice in the book. Once, when I first meet him, and I think this is in 2012, and then later when I follow up with him in 2016. And he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, he'd had it for about 10 years by the time I met him at first. And one of the things that happens with Parkinson's and the way he explains it, I'm not a doctor, right? right. This is the way I, I'm more or less quoting the way he describes his condition is that he has trouble communicating with his limbs and his limbs increasingly get cramped, get it's like a full body Charlie horse and he get becomes immobilized in his condition. And when he first started, he was taking a lot of drugs, mostly, uh, steroids and and then sort of things that, that increase neurotransmission things that up the dopamine and 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 that, that are supposed to sort of 
um, compensate for the decreased signals that your brain is sending out to to the limbs. Unfortunately, with drugs, there's sort of this decline. Like at first, it might work really well, and then it's a slow decline down to where the you know your your body just gets used to the drug or whatever happens, you develop resistance, and then there's just no hope. You have to do increasingly invasive things until the prognosis is you're locked in your body, and that's it. And that's what this guy was seeing. This was the, the future he Hans was was seeing, and he sort of took a leap of faith. He'd heard about Wim. He's Dutch. Wim is very popular in Holland. And, and w uh, working directly with Wim, he, he decided that, well, actually, here's something that's really interesting about him. Before we talk about what he was doing with Wim, he also discovered that when he was in the most pain, and he's in this locked and cramped Charlie horse, uh, and often that's in the mornings when he wakes up like that, okay. he, he can only control his mouth. That's the only thing that he really has his head. Uh, and he found that he could scream obscenities into his pillow and just get really pissed off. And that if he got really, really pissed off, those signals that his brain was sending out actually could loosen up the muscles in his whole body. So he would do this thing where he would just curse and curse and curse and just that anger and that, that rising signal that his brain was sending out eventually put those symptoms into submission so that he could continue on his day. And that's really fascinating the fact that that it works like that yeah. uh for him and then what but what he but the problem with that is that he it's also really self-destructive you yeah. know if you're just cursing Very stressful your, it's horrible and and so with wim what what he, he he discovered is that cold can actually also sends a strong signal but it doesn't send it from the brain outwards it sends it from the from his skin into his mind essentially and so he would take cold showers in the morning and cold ice baths. And there's also this breathing technique, which, which, which um, Wim, Wim does. And that also created a strong signal that wasn't so self-destructive and he could plan. And the end result over the course of years is that instead of this trend towards drug resistance, uh, where he was having, you know, he, was, he said, um, the, the numbers are in the book, but he would have something like, uh, I think it's like, eight good hours a day and good hours mean he could like do stuff and the rest was like cramped mess in his bed uh, and it was getting worse and worse and worse because the drugs were not working and not working and not working he found that he could with these cold showers with this breathing the good hours increased rapidly he had uh something like 16 good hours and only eight hours cramped so it wasn't a full reversal of parkinson's but it it, it greatly increased his ability to live his life and the, he was taking fewer and fewer drugs along the way that right there is absolutely amazing. I hope people take note of that as well. Oh, and if, and if you're if you have listeners who have Parkinson's, um, I think he has a Facebook page where you can look at all of the because he keeps track of the drugs he takes. Um, it's called Challenging Parkinson's on Facebook, uh, and you can just pick it up. His name is Hans Spahn, so you can actually track his progress as he continues forward in researching. Oh, this. wow. Okay, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well, so everybody has access to that too. That kind of just uh, brings us back. So when you learned that your body could now adapt to environmental changes, acute stressors like that. Um, when you came back to America, you started seeking out people that could start giving you answers as to why this was working, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the question of why cold does anything, it was fascinating. And, and, it, and it boils down to exactly the heart of what your podcast is about. Our species and homo sapien, sapien, us, we are about 200,000 years old, give or take. And in that time, and before that, we have 
three billions of uh, years of evolution that that happened before that, that got us to that, that, that nice hairless ape that we are now. Hmm. And in that time, we, our physical bodies and ourselves were constantly at the mercy of nature, which means we would have day and night. We would have hot in the day and cold at night. Even in the equatorial regions of the world, there's a huge temperature difference between night and day. And you might be sleeping on the ground. You might have a fire, maybe. Maybe you've got some animal skins around. I mean, pretty primitive technology. And over the course of our our species sort of propagation through the world, we left Africa. We crossed mountains. We crossed scorching deserts. There were no doubt storms. There were no doubt blizzards. There were no doubt hurricanes. We were and we were dealing with all of this with only a whisper of what anyone would consider modern technology or technology and nothing of what we would consider modern technology. Mm-hmm. And our bodies had to be strong and have to and not only strong, but they had to adapt quickly to these environments or else we would perish. We wouldn't have passed on our genes. And and those changes in nature were so constant that 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 the, the changes were thought as constant within our DNA. Um, and so, so we could, we could take that as a given, but fast forward to the modern humans that we are now in the last hundred years, maybe 150 years, heat and cold and light and just general comfort and homeostasis is available at the flip of a button at the flip of a switch. We no longer have shifts in our temperature between day and night because we're inside because we're insulated. We can go our whole day. Uh, you know, to our office, to home, to the, some nice restaurant, eat some food that was flown in from all the way across the world. And, and we have completely factored out the environment from our bodies. We've, we've factored out those natural changes from our body. And, and what has it done to our underlying health? Like, aren't those changes important? And if you think about our immune system and our fight or flight responses, two things that are interrelated, uh, if your immune system is always looking for a predator, always looking for a problem, whether it's a bacteria coming in or, you know, some sort of stressor coming onto it, or your 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 autonomic nervous system is worried about fluctuations in its environment and is capable of changing things and, and, and modulating to it. If we don't give it anything to do, it's essentially having this predator in your body that's bored and that and and mm-hmm. and, and wants to go attack itself. And, you know, it's got these big sharp teeth, you know, not literally, but and and, and and maybe it gnaws on your bone because you have rheumatoid arthritis or you have these ulcers in your in your intestine tract that, that, that's Crohn's disease. It's because this predator has nothing to do. And these and these cold showers and this breathing method and various other sorts of environmental conditioning are essentially giving that predator a chew toy, mm, you know, something like something to do. And and, you know, going back to this guy with Parkinson's, but also these people, uh, you know, I met a guy who reversed rheumatoid arthritis that was like crippling. He was stuck in bed. His joints were swollen like plums. And he starts doing these cold showers, starts doing these breathing techniques, techniques. And instead of doing what the doctors were, were suggesting, which is cutting off bone and and, and removing parts of his body, uh, the, the condition subsides on its own because he's giving his body something to do. And, and so if you think, and it makes total sense, like our species is designed for variation. And when we put ourselves in this cocoon of comfort, um, all we're doing is, is factoring out something that is very natural for us. And, and you can't just take the predator out of the body, right? It's still going to be there. 
It, yeah. We've only had a hundred years to adapt to our to our technological brain, and it's what anthropologists call uh, evolutionary mismatch diseases, where the the, the 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 technology that we have has outpaced our uh, body's ability to adapt. And it's interesting because. In your book, uh, you, you make a, a few comparisons, and, and as you make some of these comparisons to some of the technologies that we've developed as humans, I've noticed something. I've noticed that uh, when we create something new, or we create a technology outside of ourselves, there is some type of negative consequence, regardless. So in your book, I believe you, you talk about fire, right, mm -hmm. which is one essentially one of the most fundamental things that make us human, or at least mm -hmm. that had set us apart in the beginning. And right. I believe you say that, uh, you know, because of fire, uh, thus we were able to get more nutrition from our food, which softened our food, and thus had an impact on our jaw, correct? Would you may uh, elaborate sure. on that a little bit? Well, fire is really fascinating because it's old, right? It's re we've had a lot of time to play with fire. And and so, so when we come from Homo erectus and sort of these really early versions of ourselves, you know, and, and you know, there's a... There's a guy named uh, Richard Rangum, an anthropologist over, I think he's at Harvard. Uh, he wrote a book called Catching Fire. And, he's, and, and he makes a case that Homo erectus is, is the, spe the monkey that, that um, captured fire first. And what happened is, is because you're able to cook food, you're able to extract more nutrients. And, and, and if you look at sort of a, a chimp, for instance, it has a really big gut. Uh, it doesn't have fire. And, and the reason you have a big gut is because you need a lot of length in that in your intestines to sort of digest food it also has a really big and powerful jaw because it's you know because when you start chewing on i don't know what does a chimp eat i don't know uh some sort of pulpy fruit right <laughs> you, and you, a lot of plant fibers some insects yeah yeah and you need to chew a lot to break down that um, cellulose in order to get any nutrition out of it uh, but humans or Homo erectus discovered that I don't need to chew nearly as much if I can get if I can cook things and then actually food becomes more nutritious for us. Literally, if fire makes things nutritious for us. And so our species then because of fire, our species starts changing with the technology. We uh, uh, over time, we don't need to chew all the time. So our jaws actually get smaller. We don't have that giant monkey jaw. We have a sort of a more refined, smaller jaw. Our, our guts get smaller. Um, the way we walk changes uh, because we don't – I don't really know exactly why this happens, but this, you can look in Richard Rangham's book. But we start walking a lot instead. Of we, we've come down from the trees, mm -hmm. maybe because we can protect ourselves with fire. You know, Animals are scared of fire, and we had it. Uh, we lose our hair uh, because – uh, we're able to heat ourselves with fire at night to some degree and lice were an issue, I think. Um, but anyway, the, 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 so, the, so this technology actually changes our body, but it changes it slowly over many, many, many years. Uh, and so the jaw you have now, the reason why we have, um, wisdom teeth issues, you know, when you go, you hit your twenties is, is although our jaws shrank, uh, we didn't actually decrease the number of teeth mm -hmm. that we get. So, so then these teeth will come in and it'll move things out of position. And in the old monkey times where they had wisdom teeth, um, if you chew a lot, your teeth actually move around in your jaw and they sort of, they get into the right place. Hmm. But if you don't chew constantly, you're not chewing on like fiber all the time, your teeth don't have, have the, the, the chance to move around proportionally and they get, you get crowding in your mouth. So no, none of our ancient ancestors weirdly had bad teeth, uh, and uh, and it was it was because now our food is softer and softer and softer that our jaws um, do this. So 
you know, one thing that some of these evolutionary biologists suggest you do is that when you're kids, you should chew a lot of gum and you'll, and you'll cut down on your dental um, bills later. So there, there's a takeaway for your audience right there. Give yeah, your West, kids gum. Weston A. Price actually <laughs> obviously has a lot of great research on indigenous tribes and specifically dental health. You know, and I find this also interesting that when we get more technology, for some reason, we seem to lose a part of us that made us more human. You know, there's so many other elements that um, I think people just haven't really thought about that they've outsourced that is essentially making us as a species more weak. Learning this, well, knowing this knowledge, having the awareness is is absolutely key. My, my favorite example is actually um, something that I think just about every one of your listeners can uh, gel with because they, they've we've seen ourselves get weaker. You know, if you remember the 1990s, uh, there was this time when you moved to a new city. You know, let's say you you, you move from New York to Boston. And you, you, you got to Boston and you wanted to get, find the Starbucks or whatever it is they were doing then. To find it, you had to bring out one of these ancient pieces of technology that had like the, the picture of the city on it with the streets oh, on yeah. it. What was that called and again? It's a, a map A or something like that. Uh, I forget. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, a map. Okay. And, I think I remember that. And you use this ancient technology to find your way around the place that you were in. And then you suddenly learned the whole city. You didn't have to refer to it all the time because you sort of just figured out your way around. And this is sort of a running joke in the book is that I get lost all the time with my GPS now. Like, like I do <laughs> too. I, I, you know, I admit that myself. So, so now you, you have the you have the GPS. You put in the location and you make all these turns unconsciously, and you've outsourcing literally something that, that, that anthropologists call um, where, uh, uh, wayfaring, pathfinding from your brain to this external device. And you actually see, you know, they've done autopsies on on on, um, on, on people on London cab drivers who had to memorize every street in London to get around. That was to pass the cabbie exam. You had to do that. And they measured the recently dead cabbies who were who died on the job, uh, and they found they had a really enlarged hippocampus, and that and then they 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 also autopsied cabbies who'd been out of the the cabbing business for like you know five years, and their hippocampuses were tiny again. They'd gone back down to small mm -hmm. size because they weren't using that skill anymore. And we've all seen this. We've all seen like our 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 relative inability to navigate uh, because. You know, we're like, oh, that's easier. You know, hey, that, that that you know, I don't need to think anymore. Let that thing think for me. Exactly. And who knows what else is related to like, like, what is artificial intelligence doing to us? Like, oh my gosh. Like, like, you know, all this decision making that's happening in an algorithm. Uh, we may have had a brain structure that was supposed to do that stuff for us. Now, it may not matter if you can search out on Amazon better for the best books around, you know, which is what doesn't kill us by that now. Um, it, it's, it, it, you know, but, but there are other things that, that we may not even be, be guessing, uh, and that, that we can't even fathom where that, where that decision-making is, has been outsourced. And then, then, then we just lose that ability entirely. Look, dating, think about dating for right now. Oh, Tinder. No. I'd rather you know, not, but you, you please elaborate. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. You know, uh, I don't know how many friends I have who now can't form long-term relationships because getting a date is so easy that you just swipe right or swipe left. And then you have this infinite choice and always the next person's going to be a little better that you can't form deep bonds anymore. It's so superficial. It, it's superficial, but it's also evolutionarily because where we came from, not only 10 years ago when their dating was like high school or however it or you know, whatever it happened. But hundreds of years ago, you had so few partner options that 
that that you, you you're designed for long-term bonds, but in that short term, you're like, I, I have three people to choose from. I'm gonna gonna try to choose for the best of these three possible mates. Mm -hmm. uh, but now you have 150 million mates, and and you just keep on wanting something else. And and so, you know, yeah, the 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 modern world that we have is really having a profound impact on the interior body that that we carry with us. Yeah, we've we've created a mismatch of modern culture and that's and that's exactly that's why I this podcast specifically is is I feel personally going to be a very very big hit and really touch the hearts of a lot of people that are listening. So, um Oh, you know what? I want to go back to the Wayfair for just a second, only sure. because there was something that I didn't know about and I thought was really interesting. And it was um, the story of, uh, I believe it was Captain Cook. And yes. it was actually the gentleman who actually helped him map the seas. Tupaya. Yeah. yeah. But what allowed him to map the seas? You said that there was actually, uh, I may be getting this wrong, but magnetic um, cells or something within the eyes and nose that was allowing him to calibrate his electromagnetic sensitivity with the earth. Well, so there's there's a fair amount of research out there suggesting that humans have an innate ability to find uh, directions, and it's probably magnetic. Um, there is confounding research. Some people say it's not magnetic. Some say it's 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 various other things. We don't really know how humans are able to 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 to, to navigate, especially indigenous people. Um, but the the consensus seems to be that there is this innate wayfaring uh, in us and. You know, so there was this Captain Cook um, was traveling around. He was the first uh, Westerner to circumnavigate New Zealand. He was in Australia and he met this tribe called the Gugu Yamatir. I'm totally mispronouncing that, but I don't think anyone knows how to pronounce it anymore because we probably killed them all. And because that's another evolutionary mismatch right there. Mm -hmm. uh, so but but when he, he encountered these people, uh, he started to make a codex of their language and they had no word for right or left or straight or back uh, straight ahead or, or or backward all they had were it were cardinal directions so you are currently sitting standing to the west of me right you're not standing in front of me or right. or you know and, and just think about the dinner party right you know <laughs> you all sit around a table and they just knew what direct cardinal direction people were and they had no concept of like them at the center and it was just natural for them and so tupaya was from a not from that tribe but a related tribe nearby he could navigate all the islands around and he actually showed captain cook the islands so he could map them on a on a paper map that ancient technology i was mentioning before but he could do it supposedly by reading the waves um, it's 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 and there was a New York Times magazine article I think last year about this and it's called Dil D I L uh, apostrophe L E P Lep Dil Lep uh, and it's like the 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 minute signatures that land uh, creates on ocean currents and and there's only like two people alive today who can still read Dil Lep but they can but they're called wave pilots and they're able to just like know and like and like how did the Polynesians populate all that scattered islands. You know, they're in this right. little canoe and they just like, well, I hope there's land over there. No, it's not. They just hoped they were like, I can see there's land over there. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a, it's a mystery, honestly, on how they did it. I, you know, you and I probably could not learn this, or if it did, it would be a very difficult process to learn, but humans did humans learned how to navigate the world. And, and it's because we have some sort of biological ability that's hardwired in us. 
That was one of the more fascinating stories. I, I absolutely loved that one. Explain to me some of the people that you met along your journey as you developed your practice, the Wim Hof practice, and learning more about cold exposure. Who did you come in contact with that was also familiar with this? So Wim is, is, is sort of the, the starting point for me in this book, but humans have been, and, and I'm not even talking about evolutionary humans, I'm historical humans have been using the cold for a very long time to develop robustness. If we go back to the Spartans, uh, you know, you train these, these super soldiers in, in ancient Greece, uh, they would wear only a red robe. You know, we've maybe all seen 300, right? These super fit. Oh, yeah crossfitter type guys. Well, that's roughly the outfits that they actually did wear and no matter what the weather was. Now, admittedly, Greece is probably not the coldest place on earth, but still they believed that if they wore only their sandals and like a little loincloth and that red cloak, that, that they would become stronger uh, because the environment's always buffeting them. And, and they did, they were pretty badass warriors. Um, you look at these uh, there's there's a, a Russian like Siberian uh, religious movement that emerged in the late 1800s where people would dump ice buckets on them uh, in Siberia. Do you know they, to, they still do that today? They still as do a that. Matter of fact, they, with their children, they still do. There was that viral video that was going around. Absolutely. Um, uh, about this. And, and so people, you know, and, you know, in the, and I actually begin the book with a, with a quote from the American journal of, uh, I'm going to read it for you. And I just found this hilarious. So I had, I had to put this in the book. Uh, it's from the journal of the American medical association in 1914. It says the daily cold plunge does not necessarily place a man next to the gods as he so frequently thinks that it does. Such cold plungers are often very proud of their accomplishment and sneer at those who do not take this daily treatment. The plunger is likely to thank God that he is not like other men. Very many times daily cold plungers or cold showers are harmful, especially for those who are underweight or are losing too much weight. And this, this quote says just so much to me. One, because people who, who tout cold plunges as like great for health are obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, and then I was like, I'm going to write a book about that. <laughs> and the other thing is that, um, we have a rampant obesity epidemic in the United States, a and not only in the United States, the whole world has this, we have consumed far too many calories, get far too little environmental exposure, far too little exercise. And, and cold is actually the best way to maintain weight. Uh, you know, if you exercise, if you want to go, you're, you're a little, you're getting a little pot belly. You're like, oh, I want to get rid of that pot belly. And you go for a run uh, and, and, and you start running, get in a really good, you know, uh, physical shape. You, your body would prefer to burn muscle than it would to burn the, that your, the spare tire around your body because that's just what the body likes to do. And, and but cold is the is the opposite you're it, it, to heat yourself the body would rather burn fat through uh, a metabolic activity um called thermogenesis than it would uh burn muscle so and, and there's this tissue we have called brown adipose tissue or brown fat that every human is born with but goes away for people who aren't regularly exposed to cold that its whole job is to suck white fat from your body and burn it for heat energy and you know, uh, it, 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 this is why I lost seven pounds of fat while doing the Wim Hof method in Poland, despite the fact that eating a, you know, a Polish diet, uh, it was cause the body was like, Oh, I'm cold. I'm going to go start, you know, I'm going to start heating myself up and it uses this, this, this mechanism to do that. And so that quote I love is because like, if you're losing too much weight, you're in a lot of trouble, which might actually be accurate. If you're very, very thin, 
maybe cold plunges could be could theoretically be dangerous to you because you, you, if you want to bulk up, uh, especially with fat, it's difficult to do under those conditions. But since that's not most of our problems, mm-hmm. start getting cold and you will lose weight. Right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with eating regimes now that are now uh, high fat, low carb, and they're using this as an idea that, yes, your body evolutionarily was typically used to burning its own fat rather than carbohydrates because carbohydrates were so scarce. However, fats and animal proteins were very, not necessarily abundant, but they were far more calorically dense. And thus we were actually use that to create something called ketone bodies and use that instead to fuel our bodies rather than what we do typically in a modern world, which is burn sugar as fuel. Right. Right. And which is weird because we don't, the only place we got sugar in the olden days was from honey. You know, you know, that was the only place you could, you could reliably get it. And you could only reliably get it if you wanted to go fight a hundred thousand bees for their honey. So it was a, a super rare thing to have. And now it's in everything. And I don't think I need to remind your readers or your listeners why that is potentially bad for you. You can just leave that there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We'll just drop that. As you're learning this and, and you're uncovering this, it, you, you meet some very interesting people along your journey. I didn't get to finish the whole thing, unfortunately, but you're, the whole book. However, I did um, end on the note of uh, Mr. Hamilton, Laird Hamilton, and your yes. experiences training with him in, I believe, Malibu. Would, would right. you like to share a little bit of that story? Yeah, so so Laird is the the biggest, sort of the best-known surfer in the world. He's known for, for, for surfing something called the Millennium Wave, which was the biggest wave ever surfed by humans ever. Uh, I think it was something like 100,000 tons. I mean, a really big thing of water. Uh, but he's he, he's just, you know, if, if you're a surfer, you know exactly who this guy is. Oh, yeah. And what he has been doing is been using the cold, using the breathing, modifying Wim's methods in order instead of just enduring extreme environments, but to get extreme athletic performance out of it. And, you know, remember how I mentioned that you could do a lot more push-ups if, if you do this wind breathing first, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, you double the push-ups. That's sort of like a side note in, in the overall what the Wim Hof method is trying to teach your body to do. But, but Laird and also a guy named Brian McKenzie, who, who is the uh, he wrote a, a book called Power, Speed, Endurance. And he's the, one of the founders of uh, high intensity interval training or HIT mm-hmm. uh, workouts where, where, where the idea is like you do a, a very short burst of, of exercise at your absolute maximum. And that's better you know, to train an endurance runner, they're just running longer and longer distances. Like those, those short hit workouts are more efficient because you're pushing your body at its absolute maximum level. Well, the, the cool thing about the wind method is that you do this breathing where you're blowing off all the CO2 by hyperventilation. You're increasing your oxygen saturation to a hundred percent. And, and you have this, when you do that, you have this short, uh, um, physical ability burst. You have a lot more oxygen and, and ability to use those resources in your body that if you mix that with a HIIT workout, uh, you actually train above your maximum threshold. You actually, and, and so your HIIT workouts are actually supercharged and your, 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 your exercise is like 105% or 107%. I'm making up those numbers, but it's more than 100 because your body is usually not able to get to that point. And so then then even these short little workouts do so much more for you. And so, so uh, Laird has these 
he uses that for his on on land training, and then he also does these uh, things where he'll he'll carry like hundred pound weights and walk along the, the 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 bottom of his pool, and you know he'll he'll do these underwater jumps where he he takes two forty pound barbells, forty, no, I think they're thirty pound barbells, and he goes down and does goes into a squat and then jumps up twelve feet because the water the pool is twelve feet deep to the surface, and then he takes a breath of air and sinks back down, and just do, does these reps over and over again, wow. and. He, and his um, training regimen, it's called XPT. Uh, it, it, it's like the toast of Malibu. Like, you know, when I showed up there, um, I had a va- – I'm not a surfer. I actually didn't know who Laird was before I started interviewing him. And I was like, oh, you're a pretty important guy. Um, you only uh, lived I, in Long Beach, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, so, so I went up there and – and it's, you know, it's packed with celebrities, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in the pool and like Orlando Bloom, you know, Legolas in the, in the, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, series is like skimming the water in his, in, in, you know, carrying this 40 or 50 pound weight, uh, with him. And, and, you know, Rick Rubin is there and, and John McGinn, like just all these celebrities are doing it. And it's because, uh, uh, they believe in Laird and they really believe that he's able to produce these results. And, 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 uh, yeah, it was, it was an honor to, to be up there, uh, um, hanging out with them and seeing their techniques. And, and that's the beauty of these, of Wim's method. He sort of opens the door to a type of thinking about the body, but he is not the, the sum total of it. He is, he's the start. And then people take these lessons and move them in different directions. Uh, and, and I love that. And there's also this group called the November project, you know, Laird's workouts and the things like it, I'm assuming they're pretty expensive if you want to get into that, you know, but, you know, there's something called the, the November Project, which is a uh, free fitness movement all over the country, which who's, uh, you know, and they do like burpees and pushups and they run around the block. And it's like in the mornings usually and, and they're in just about every city in America. And what it is, is, is they make a commitment that no matter what, every week they're going to go to these workouts. It doesn't matter if it's a blizzard outside or if it's scorching, if it's just a pleasant day. Every week you make a commitment to be out there, which interestingly, and they're not even thinking of it this way. They just think, they just think we're going to do this. But it's putting your body in touch with those natural seasonal variations that our species has come accustomed to. And they don't articulate it like this, but this is why I love them, is that they're just like, we're going to do this all the time. Just like our ancestors had to you know, hunt antelope or like look for tubers or whatever we were doing historically, um, you know, and, and by experiencing the environment, you, you give those signals, those neural signals from the world uh, to, to the, the nerves in your skin and say, okay, we'll do this. So when I do the November project workouts, I, you know, I go shirtless, you know, blizzard. Okay. I'm shirtless. And, and because our body can, can withstand it, especially for short periods of time. Uh, you know, you're going to be working out and, and, and you're getting all these signals that, that put your various hormonal and endocrine cycles into the place where they need to be to adapt to that environment. And, and as I said earlier, our bodies are designed to adapt quickly. It's not something that they were like, Oh, look, a blizzard's coming. I'll get ready for it within the next six months. That's not what happens. It's like, I'm going to get ready right the fuck now because there's a blizzard coming <laughs> yeah like i'm gonna die i need i need to build some type of storage or something to keep me alive yeah some sort of response 
Uh, and you know, you know, and 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 you know, I know I'm leaving your question a little bit, but there's this typical, very normal mammalian response that we all have, which is called vasoconstriction, mm-hmm. and our bodies are um, our vascular system is lined with muscles, uh, and and they're muscles that are so strong that if you were to cut your leg off below the knee. They could squint shut so tightly that you're not going to bleed out and die. It's 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 it, it's like these are really powerful and strong muscles, but and, and what and usually that's not why you need to use these muscles. What they're there for is that if you get cold, um, those those veins will constrict and put the the bulk of your blood into your core to keep your organs and uh, warm so that you don't die of hypothermia and and so it's lose the extremities in order to save the core. That was an evolutionary thing that, that we have, and all mammals have this. Mm-hmm. However, you know, because we had those constant variations, vasoconstriction would just be a thing that happens. You'd have it all the time. But if you live at 72 degrees, those muscles never need to get active because it sort of hurts. It's sort of a little bit uncomfortable if you don't do it regularly. Uh, and, and but you know, we get these weak, weak circulatory muscles, yes, which leads to circulatory diseases. And, and the only way to activate them, literally the only way is to get cold and, and cold showers, jumping into snow. If you're in, uh, if you're in California, go swim in the Pacific right now. Um, that is a great way to trigger vasoconstriction and it's like lifting weights for your circulatory system. You know, you think about, and also like, you know, really common going from a sauna to the snow, sauna to snow. That's something people in like the Northern climates do all the time. And it's really, really healthy to do. Absolutely. And I think that's a a common practice also in Russia and Siberia and those places, uh, Mm -hmm. the Netherlands, where that that's just a common traditional practice again something that you know i feel like in america because we are such a new country lost a lot of ancient traditions that we might have had in the city there's a place called archimedes banya and it's a traditional russian style bathhouse mm-hmm. so what what i do is exactly that they have a dry sauna and then they have a cold plunge so i will nice. alternate 20 minutes in the dry sauna at like a hundred i i I don't even know what it is. It's extremely hot. I am pouring sweat by the time I get out of here and then Uh immediately go into like 39 degree cold water. Boom. Right. Hit that for maybe two minutes, go back in and maybe do three rounds of that. And I'm good. Yeah. And if you want to actually supercharge what you're doing, uh, what you do is when you get into the cold water, uh, and you might want to start cold and then go hot next time. Okay. Um, when you jump into that into that water, your natural response is fight or flight. You're going to trigger the sympathetic nervous system, and you're going to tense up first, and then you're going to shiver because that's what we do. We, and shivering is a strategy to heat your body because muscle movement uh, releases uh, heat energy. Uh, but you, have, because our nervous system is so weird and complex and wonderful, what you can do is you can get into that cold water. And instead of tensing up, which will burn calories, you know, t- tensing up's not bad for you, but since you're exercising, try not to tense up, try to relax in that environment, try to not shiver and just get into a sort of a place of meditation or centered, just, you know, feel your body and just be okay knowing that maybe your body temperature will, will drop a little bit, but just be okay with that. And what actually happens is by taking out the natural response to shiver. Your body says, hell no, I don't want to die. I'm going to find another way 
to resist this cold. And what it starts to do is ramp up the metabolism. It starts to ramp either, it sends signals to start uh, producing more mitochondria, which of course won't happen while you're in the in the in the the cold, but it's a signal that will stay and work later, or it will start sucking white fat from your body and burning it for heat energy. And this is a mammalian thing, and this is one great way to lose weight, and also just just tell your metabolism to start working and sort of controlling it. And it's it's a, a thing that I call in the book a concept that I call the wedge. You know, you're putting a wedge between your autonomic response to shiver and your ability to control that response. And as you do that, you gain control over, um, you can gain control over any autonomic system in your body um, by doing this. And it's probably one of the basic ways that humans learn anyway from infanthood, you know, where you have this body that you don't really know how to control, you don't really know how to do anything, but you're in all these different environments. And it's you learning how to do things is is you expressing control over what is essentially an autonomic thing initially, your, your limbs, you don't have control over them. And, and at infanthood, they're basically an autonomic part of your body. Right. Then you're sort of learning to control it and you're using a, a, a technique that's very similar to this. You're just doing it naturally. And, and with this Wim Hof method and, and sort of the way that I teach it, you're actually growing your wedge by resisting this cold, by, by, by saying, okay, I'm in this environment and I'm going to just figure out and tell my body to do something else. And, and, you know, you can train your way to not sneeze if you wanted to. I mean, I don't know if that's a great idea, but you could, you could, since I you can consciously, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great, but you can consciously not sneeze. So you can actually gain control over that. You can use it to not be ticklish. You could use it to say delay an orgasm. You could use it to do anything where, where you have a stimulus coming in and, and you recognize that there is a, a, a way for your body to respond to that stimulus and you can resist it, you, you can grow a wedge. Those are the, th the factors you need to sort of crack into your inner biology. If we're looking to build this wedge, you know, mm -hmm. we're looking to build this for ourselves, where would you have us start exactly? Uh, so the, the breathing method is, uh, it, it, you know, I would start with breathing and cold, uh, and you can do this with other things. You could do this with heat if you wanted to. Um, but heat is, I think a little more dangerous because it's easier to cool. Uh, it's easier to heat up a body than it is to cool one off. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so the dangers are less with, with, um, with the cold, but there are certainly corresponding heat training regimens you can do, but I always remember what happened in that sauna in Arizona a couple of years ago where all these guys died because they were in the sauna too long. Uh, oh, I didn't you know, hear about that. Oh, it was a, it was a, it was a sort of one of these religious movements in Sedona, uh, where a, a pretty famous sort of, uh, guru, I guess you could say, uh, basically had people sit in the sauna and have this sort of transcendental experience. Cause if you're in there for a very long time, you sort of, put yourself on the edge of a sort of a conscious and unconscious state. Uh, and, uh, and he was using basically to do the same sorts of training that I'm talking about here. Uh, but they stayed in too long. And then when they finally stumbled out, it was too late. They were cooked and then, then it was over. Whereas cold, you can still certainly get yourself killed in the cold, but, uh, it's harder to do, you know? Um, and you, all, you should also never use any of these techniques in the water. Um, you know, the, the, especially the, the oh, sorry, you should use the, the cold plunging techniques in the water. You shouldn't use the breathing techniques uh, that are taught in the water because it's very easy to pass out doing this breathing method. And uh, what the breathing method is, it's, it's hyperventilating. 
and then holding your breath with no air in your lungs and then hyperventilating and then holding your breath with no air in the lungs and then doing it uh, three or four reps. And when I do it in the mornings, I'll do a hyperventilation, 30 breaths. I'll do 30 of those, let all the air out of my lungs and just hold it for as long as I can. Uh, And usually I'll do a minute, about a minute, maybe a minute and 10 uh, the first rep, the second rep I'll do, and you'll get lightheaded. Your fingers will tingle. Those are all very normal responses. Uh, and then you'll do another rep and I'll hold it for two minutes. And the third rep, I'll hold it for three. Um, I've been doing it for a little, a little while. The first time you do this, you maybe not hit those numbers, but I was going to say that's impressive. Three minutes but, with, you know, on an exhale is pretty impressive. Right. And if you do an inhale, you'll be able to hold it for a lot longer, obviously, for obvious reasons. And then at the end of that, then I do push-ups. Again, I do another rep of hyperventilation. I let all the air out of my lungs. I do about 50 push-ups without without breathing. Uh, And that's the basic sort of morning 15-minute breathing method routine uh that you do i you might i might throw a headstand in at the end and that's that's the that that's that's what it is and and what you're doing by blowing off co2 and increasing your oxygen saturation of your blood to 100%. Usually we carry about 97 98% saturation. This brings it up to 100, but more importantly, uh this blows off all of the the waste product of respiration which is co2, which is what your body uses to detect um, when it has to gasp for air. So, so your body can't detect oxygen for whatever evolutionary reason it can detect the poisonous waste product of respiration. So when we blow off all that CO2, we're able to push ourselves harder because your body doesn't know when it's, when it's reserves are, 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 are built up. But in general, the body is so conservative uh, with how it thinks about when it when its maximum load is achieved, that you your your, your reservoirs are much deeper than you could ever imagine. Uh, so when we do these breath out um, uh, push-ups, you very slowly build up that CO2 again because you have you respire back into your lungs, and then eventually you sort of run out of steam. But you're able to dig much much deeper into what your physical reserves actually are. Um, the reason why we don't do it with full lungs, incidentally. Um, is that if you do it with full lungs, you can certainly do more push-ups. You can hold your breath for longer. That's that, that you can get you the maximum, absolute maximum is much easier with full lungs. However, uh, it, 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 it turns out that your body has um, difficulty uh, recognizing the CO2 buildup in the same way, and it's much, much easier to pass out okay. um, with full lungs. And, you know, that's one of the, the, the dangers of the Wim Hof method is that is that sometimes it, that, that passing out can sneak up on you. This is why you usually do it low to the ground and you pass out and you'll just come right back to in no time. Like it's, it's a very quick thing. But, you know, I, I, I did this once. I, I actually I, I used to try to do breath in full push ups to see how, exactly how many push ups I could absolutely yeah, I do. Quantify it. Uh, and I could hit 80 doing doing this which is a tremendous number of push-ups but it, it also like i hit 80 and then i passed out banged my head on the floor i was like oh all right um, <laughs> lesson learned so, so yeah lesson so i don't train at that level i train i train at 50 breath out push-ups and i know when i'm hitting that pass out um pass out point you know it reminds me so i i once did a uh what is called a holotropic breathing uh mm-hmm training program uh some uh, i believe it was in uh, not malibu it was in venice beach actually yeah. and it was in a gorgeous home and everything and we had a group of maybe 20 30 people and it was very similar to that where it is a, a <laughs> massive hyperventilation however you're doing it for an extended period of time and what i notice is that when you're doing that it, uh, for for a, quite a long time is that my hands 
would Hurt. ball up into yep. little fists and all mm-hmm. the muscles in my body got extremely mm-hmm. tight. And just like you said, very, very lightheaded. But at the same time, it was very um, spiritual, I guess you could say. I don't mm-hmm. know how to describe it because it gave you this very, very calming sense of euphoria. Right. And, except um, for your hands, which hurt. Yeah. But <laughs> except for your hands, which hurt. Yeah. And you, and typically this was like a, a mini session. Typically mm-hmm. in holotropic breathing classes, you, you would have a partner and that person would be watching over you the entire time. And it would be anywhere right. between one to three hours of this type of breathing. Right. But right. Um, it, it, it always struck me that that was very similar. And I always wanted to kind of know what the two, um, exactly right. what they had in common. So I'm, I'm learning that now. So that's really interesting. So they're super related and I've done, um, a, a similar version. I've never done a holotropic breathing class, but I've certainly done the, the hour long, um, hyperventilation sessions, uh, while doing the Wim Hof, uh, method. Uh, I've done it both with alternating breath holds and also just straight breathing for an hour, uh, just to see what the difference are. And, and certainly the cramping hands are really annoying. Like, Oh my gosh. And, and I don't know if that's good or bad for you. Like I've just experienced this and I've been like, interesting. Uh, but you know, you, you can't, and, and Wim has a couple, uh, breathing methods that he teaches, which, which he says, uh, mimic or release DMT, which is the, the, um, so-called spirit molecule. It's yes. the molecule you release from your, your pineal gland when you die and is, has a hallucinogenic effect. It's the same chemical that people, um, uh, experience when they take ayahuasca, uh, on these things. And it, and it's, it's a, it, it's essentially a death experience um, that you have. And uh, DMT is a fascinating thing. I've never done it exogenously. I've never taken the drug and I think it would be interesting, but what I've read about it is that there's, um, uh, a very common hallucination that people have, which is where they, 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 they sense beings around them mm. when they, when they do this. And, and this is super weird, but they say they see something called machine elves. You can Google this. You can see huh, both I, pictures I did not of people know that. that. Where, where, where a lot of people will see the same hallucination when they do this, which is why we, one of the reasons why we say it's when you die, because it's a common hallucination. So Wim has a breathing technique that he says will activate DMT. Now, this isn't studied in a lab. We don't have a probe in someone's pineal gland to see if this is actually happening. But the reason they say it's a DMT um, release is because people who have done DMT say that it's, it's a very similar experience, uh, to, to this. And, you know, I've done it and, and, uh, um, I don't think I'm going to explain the exact method on your podcast, uh, because there's a chance of again, falling down and hurting yourself. Of course. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, you, it takes only about five or 10 minutes to get into, into the state where you need to be. And then I, you know, all of a sudden I was surrounded by, you know, surrounded. I felt that I was surrounded by these loving angel type things looking at me and being all very happy. I was like, whoa, that's really a really cool experience. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's important. I don't know if this is like we care <laughs> that this experience happens. Um, but it's interesting that, that, that you can get into that, into that place. It's not core to the method by any means. It's sort mm-hmm. of like a side trip. I know that uh, towards the end of your journey, you did a, a really, really awesome climb with Wim mm-hmm. himself, right? And where did you go and, and what happened? So, uh, you know, uh, earlier I, I hiked up Mount Snezka with, with Wim in the, in the Polish winter, and that was really cool. And I wanted another challenge. I wanted to see how my body would change over the course of, of uh, the, the research. And I did two things uh, at the end of it. One, I ran the most notorious cold weather obstacle mm-hmm. course uh, race in the world, something called Tough Guy, 
in the, in England, in, and it's it's traditionally held in the coldest week in England. Uh, and most of the way, what you're doing is it's the normal obstacles. You climb over things. And there's barbed wire and electric, whatever. Um, but there's also a lot of water obstacles where you jump into like freezing water, and then you're still running for another 12 miles or something like that. And you keep on going and getting yourself cold. And the year before I did it, 300 people ended up in the hospital with hypothermia. Oh, wow. So. So, it, so that's not good, right? <laughs> hypothermia is not good. That's not, we're not aiming for hypothermia in this, in this method. Um, but I'd been do, doing the training for a while. I was like, I'm going to do this in my bathing suit and sneakers. That's, and I think I had a hat on maybe gloves too, but basically a lot of skin, um, to the air. And I ran the whole thing and I was burning up the whole time. And I felt like I was a dragon. Like it was really cool. And I was like smiling and everyone else is like in their neoprene and, oh, and yeah. really cold. And I was just like on fire and it's, and it's, and it's it's sort of like this different relationship that I have with the cold than a lot of other people because I, I regularly expose myself to this and I'm also not scared of it. Like cold does not frighten me and I'm able to, to modulate my temperature uh, in it. Uh, and and it was great. It was just a euphoric experience the whole time where most people's experience is like, oh no. Now I didn't win the race. I didn't come close to winning the race. I didn't, you know, I finished in like three hours or something like that. And usually, it, you know, the, the top people can do it in like an hour. My goal was not to win. My goal is to to finish. to finish and to be in it. And so that was really cool. But the the, the real capstone of the book is we um women and i uh and and a, a group of uh, 28 people in total uh flew to mount kilimanjaro in tanzania and we uh our goal was to try to see if the method would be useful uh in combating altitude sickness right so climbing up mount kilimanjaro is not a technically difficult thing it's 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 a it's a hike right it's it's there's no ropes or anything like that but but it has a startlingly low success rate um, because you go from about 5,000 feet to about 19,000 feet and and a lot of people when they do that you have this uh, what's AMS or acute mount, uh, mountain sickness where where because of the decreased oxygen saturation at high altitudes um, people are no longer able to get oxygen to their tissues as effectively and and so what you do traditionally is take about five days to get to the summit taking easy stages so you know you, you stop for a night at a relatively low altitude when you know you physically could go more but you, you stay there so that your body can get just used to breathing lower oxygen and it takes five days to get to the top um and even that has a pretty low it has like a 70 or 60 percent success rate because people who get ams get dizzy their their lungs can fill with fluid it can be a fatal condition mm. Uh, and, and I think about a dozen people die on the mountain every year uh, uh, going up it. So it, it's dangerous, although not technically difficult. You're, what you're doing is you're fighting your internal body mm -hmm. to get at the top. Our goal was different. Our goal was to get to the top uh, in – he wanted to do it in, uh, in two days uh, to get to the top of the mountain. And so I – What did you think up, of that? When, when he told you that, what, what went through your mind? Um, I thought that it was potentially dangerous. I'd spoken with the army. I'd spoken with, uh, who, who, who they, they've done a lot of high altitude research. I've spoken with mountaineers and they said it was a suicide mission. Um, uh, they, they predicted a 90% failure rate, <laughs> possibly a death. And we had 28 people in varying, um, physical conditions. Some people had sort of advanced autoimmune diseases. A lot of people were just not very fit. You know, some people were of course. Um, but we went up the mountain and, and, uh, you know, and, and we were compensating for the altitude loss. So, so we knew we had to go quickly, 
because you have to go quickly if you're going to do it in a quick time. Um, and we were going to be basically hyperventilating the entire way up oh, the mountain. Oh, okay. Uh, so we're compensating for the low, low air very early. So it's a, a relative of the wind breathing all the way up. Um, and I mean, the chapter is very long. There's a lot of like challenges that I had to overcome, but the long story short, oh, and I was also, um, for most of the time I was just in a bathing suit. I put a sweater on twice when it dropped to negative 30. Um, uh, but in general, I was pretty shoddily clothed. We made it up to the top of the mountain, but we didn't do it in two days. We did it in 28 hours. Wow, uh, and so you that's see, not a testament right there. Yeah. I mean, it was a, you know, it, we didn't get to the very summit. We got to a place called Gilman's Point, which is right to the point where you get up to the top of the volcano and can look down to the other side. And then you have to go around the volcano to get a little bit higher. But we stopped at Gilman's Point because uh, we were pooped, uh, <laughs> essentially. And I was being buffeted by winds. It was negative 30. And, you know, uh, I figured it was enough of a, of a, of a feat. But 20 hours is extremely, extremely fast, especially considering that there's no acclimation. Yeah. And the typical person and the, with the success rate was, uh, yeah, uh, five days and yeah. less than, you know, 70%. That's, an, that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. okay. Well, you know what? Um, I actually asked a few people beforehand. I know you don't like to look at questions or anything. I know that I emailed them to you. Um, but, uh, there were a couple people that had some questions and I thought maybe we could just go over them kind of rapid fire real quick and maybe you could just answer them for them. Sure. So I have one from Sunny Grove Mother. That's that's her name on Facebook. She's from the uh, Rewild Yourself Facebook group. And she asks, I'd like to hear if this method has much benefit to people who aren't interested in ultra athletic feats, which I oh, think, you know, through this discussion. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing is, I'm not an ultra athlete. And I think that the beauty of the book is that I'm not trying to be like, I'm manlier than you. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I am perfectly happy for people to be a better athlete than I am. And uh, and I don't do ultra runs. I don't even have a particularly great workout regimen. Uh, um, this is something that, you know, the, uh, health, uh, the way we've thought about it traditionally, rests on three pillars, uh, two pillars, diet and exercise, diet and exercise. And those are the two pillars that we've, for you know, as long as I, I can remember, people are talking about those are the most important things. And what I'm suggesting is that there's a third pillar that's equally as powerful. And uh, and if you add that third pillar, add in environmental stimulus to your, your routine, uh, it's a different type of working out and it does huge things for your physiology. And, you know, you could have chiseled abs and be the best ultra whatever. Um, but if you do it in a, in a, in a gym and you're, you're at 72 degrees all the time, you could have stupidly weak circulatory muscles. Mm -hmm. Sam Sycamore of the permaculture lifestyle podcast, also from the Rewild yourself Facebook group asks, I would be curious to hear his take on whims ideas about believing in something like taking control of the endocrine system or which is being the key to actually achieving it. I'm fascinated by the influence that our beliefs seem to have in shaping our physical reality beyond merely perspective slash worldview. I think it is important to have a goal to think that you can do something. It, it, not to think from a negative standpoint that this is impossible. Uh, and I think mindset is very important to suppressing fight or flight response. You know, if I was in ice water and I was like, well, I'm going to die and I'm going to panic and I'm going to fall apart. But if I'm in ice water and I'm like, I can do this, I can find that place where I can take control. And, and, and you know, he did the same thing with um, trying to resist. He, he was tested in a laboratory where he said that he could consciously suppress his autoimmune system 
where by shutting off his immune responses and they injected him with a heat killed bacteria called endotoxin uh, and and normally when you get injected with endotoxin, you get a fever response. It's not technically dangerous to get injected with it, but you get a response and your body's like, oh, we have a foreign invader. So he was injected with endotoxin. He said he could resist the, the um, effects of it. And lo and behold, he did. He had a minor headache. That was the only thing. And usually people get really, really sick. And, and it was sort of a scientific proof that his belief, I can do this, resisting that stimulus of the endotoxin, um, was uh, was proof that 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 things were that he had certain amounts of control over his immune system that were never before seen in science. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, there you go, Sam. That was that was really good. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Jason Lilly, um, he's from the Uncaged Man Facebook group. Writes, uh, this doesn't apply to me, but I am curious. What about people who live in tropical climates? What uh, would they still benefit from cold treatments, or could something similar be done with enduring heat? What if cold showers slash ice ice baths just aren't an option, and the weather is always warm? Yeah, that's. I mean, this is actually one of the big problems with. Uh, uh, when uh, this cold training is that what if what do I do in the summer right what do I do when it's not cold out like right now I'm in Denver I can go roll in the snow I can just walk I can do it I can do a five mile run outside you know I can do anything like that and it'll be um, and I'm getting the cold but but in the summer and in the equatorial regions of the world you you have to be a little ingenious uh, on how you do things uh, I th- I think historically our ancestors might be sleeping outside and it might get right. cold in the winter, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, even at night, it might be cold, and you know, at least colder. And you have you're, what you're trying to do is add in variation, but you know, you can still find ice, right? In right. In, in in cold areas, you can still fill up a a trough like a cow trough with water and put ice in it. I mean, again, that's expensive. That's a little bit annoying to deal with, but you can do it, right? You can still take cold showers. Uh, and, and, you know, you just need to look for stimulus right. in your body. You may not be able to get the same um, level of variation, but the point is to add variation uh, mm-hmm. in, into it. I, I do know one guy who created like sort of a bucket on his shower head. So it, it's a water for the shower dipped in the bucket and he filled the bucket with ice and then put holes in the bottom of the bucket Smart. that that created a sort of cold uh, shower. I know another guy who has sort of an ice freezer. He bought like a, one of those like big ice chests mm-hmm. and then he filled it with ice water and then, you know, keeps it cold and sort of, it doesn't freeze all the way through because it's a refrigeration unit and sort of keeps ice in there and he jumps in every day. That's how he does it. Of course, since those aren't designed for that sort of, uh, um, Imagine immersion. he was a kind of small, small individual to fit in yeah. <laughs> to fit into that. No, no, you, you can get big ice freezers, but the thing is, you should have should not have it plugged into the wall if you do that. Oh, it was a, it was an electric ice freezer. Okay, I was mistaken. Yeah. I was thinking it was one of uh, like you see commonly with the uh, the the kind of uh, troughs that people are using now and filling up. Oh with. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that works. I mean, but it does require a certain amount of ingenuity, which is sort of annoying. But you know, the point is to get variation. Uh, if you're in Los Angeles, which is always um warm uh, i would say the pacific is a great place because right now it's like 50 degrees uh, that's you just go do it it's free it's right there the ocean is there mountain streams also good i mean anywhere you can find it you should uh, should try it because you know it won't kill you it's water is never below 32 degrees uh if it's liquid it's just uh, that's the, that, the, that them's the rules right mm-hmm. that is the rule okay and you know what um 
I have one last one for you. And this one comes from Errol Gerard. He's from the Quantum Health Light Water Magnesium Facebook group. I think you would really enjoy that one, by the way. Um, he says, I'm wondering if there's a documented case of healing heat intolerance with cold conditioning. And I'm not sure if you're going to have a, you know, obviously a quite or, or an answer for this, but he follows that up with the reason I'm asking is that I still need to heal some heat sensitivity that started after a concussion about 4.5 years, about five years ago. It's, uh, it's improved to the point that I was able to sleep in a tent this past summer while spending middays at home and wrapping myself up in cooling gear in the evening. Uh, but now that I also ski, I've noticed that I'm more sensitive to cold than I was before the concussion. Uh, I do some cold therapy and my functional doctor just confirmed I'm on the right track, but I'd love to hear suggestions for more specific cold therapy protocol for heat sensitivity. But really, you know, I'm thinking, you know, they're, they're probably, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, right? Like it, you're finding those variations. Um, mm -hmm. They're probably, it, there's not a specific cold protocol, right? It's, it's, right. it's simply just feeling the fluctuations of these acute mm -hmm. environmental stressors. So Errol, if you're listening, you know, it, it probably is just as simple as, is exactly what you're doing and just continuing with that, trying to build mm -hmm. the stress re response within your body. Would, would you agree with that? And you have to listen to your body with all this. I mean, I can't speak specifically to a concussion that led to heat right. sensitivity. I mean, that, there's so much. Right. We're not that doctors here. Um, and, and even a doctor would have a, a hard time with that, right? Uh, you know, you have to listen to your body uh, as you do this stuff. Go slowly. Be careful. Don't push yourself past your limits. But, you know, there is certainly research out there saying that, that um, acclimation uh, helps in both directions. Like uh, heat acclimation will help also with cold because it, it affects the same systems, just does it the, the opposite way. Um, but you are exercising the systems. The problem is stasis. The problem is, is being at constant. that normal com uh, constant comfort. Cause if you go hot and then you come back down to a normal, uh, uh, a normal baseline, you're still moving in, mm -hmm. in these directions and that's good. And, and you know, that, that sine wave doesn't have to go all the way below zero to, to still be, um, a useful, but, but certainly listen to your body as you do this, you know, don't push yourself to a place where you get frostbite or, uh, or you get scorched. Um, and, 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 uh, but do push yourself enough, like do give yourself something. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit tricky to find the balance, but, but that's the whole point of being alive is finding balance. Right. Scott, this has been amazing, man. Um, uh, I love your book. I love what you're doing right now. Um, I would love to stay in contact and, um, this has been a really nice experience. Uh, and also before, before we wrap things up, uh, if people want to connect with you personally, or maybe learn more about what you're doing, mm -hmm. uh, how would they go about doing that? So it's best to, um, follow, follow me on Facebook. Um, you know, I have an author Facebook page. I, I also have a, a personal profile that you can follow. I don't particularly like responding to friend requests, uh, on Facebook directly because I get a ton of them and I'm oh, like, I'm I sure. don't know you, you know, like, like, and you're probably a very cool person, but it, but it's, it's, it, you know, that's a personal place for me as well. You know, I'm just like everyone else. And I'd much rather connect to people, uh, through my author page, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And, and that's at scottcarney.com. Uh, scottcarney.com. Also on Facebook. I'm sure you can just, you know, Facebook search me out. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find at this point. Uh, you know, I have the, the, the book is out. It's what doesn't kill us. Uh, the audiobook. Uh, if you like listening uh, and you haven't been totally bored by the last hour and a half, I, I talked for about 10 hours. So you can go listen to the whole book. And uh, that's a great guys. way to interact with it. And uh, yeah, recorded it myself. Um, 
you know, you, you can find this book just about anywhere. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's all over the place right now. We're I really went to go pick it up at, at uh, Barnes and Noble the other day, as a matter of fact, a hard copy of it and they didn't have it. They did. They did not have it. I mean, I had to get yeah. it ordered, you know, over to my store, but I was shocked. I was like, guys, how do yeah. you not have the, my book? I need it. No, no, no yeah. they sold out. That's yeah. what happened. Oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barnes and Noble didn't order enough books, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, but but it's great. I mean, that's that's an awesome problem to have, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure they're I'm sure they're getting more. And guys, and and also Scott goes more in depth into the science of what cold exposure does to the body, what brown adipose tissue is, and how it affects you. Also, a, a lot of other really cool stories that he has along the way that we just didn't get to cover. So if you're interested in what we're talking about right now, specifically hormesis, the act of actually, you know, uh, uh, modulating your body through the use of environmental stressors, please go out and get this book. Please support him. He this this is this is a labor of love. And honestly, I, I if if you follow me or Ancestral Health Radio for any amount of time, you understand that this is definitely part of uh, what we're trying to do. And we do that by supporting each other, guys. So again, thank you, Scott. I super appreciate it. Your time. I know we went way over uh, an hour, yeah. but um, thank you. And I hope this really does benefit. Uh, benefit you and i hope that we just stay in contact man absolutely and and you know i think this is going to be a long ride and and it's to meet you and i'm glad you did this with your shirt off the whole time you know showing that you <laughs> yeah. can handle the oh, tough yeah. climate in california people, yeah people who are listening <laughs> before i did this i you know obviously i had to do it you know i have to do it and, and it's not like i haven't done this before but it's been a long time and i just stopped doing it once i moved to the bay so you know this morning i got up i was like all right let's do this got my dog next to me got into uh uh, you know, a crouch position and started hyperventilating, did three sessions of that. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do as many pushups as I thought I was going to be able to do. But again, that was the first time doing it. And then immediately I just said, fuck it, let's do the shower. Boom, hopped in. It was amazing. And at some point, guys, uh, the shower was ceased to be cold. There was no cold feeling. It literally, I, there was a moment where I didn't even feel the water. I just want you to be aware mm -hmm. of that. So um, if you're scared, just go for it. Just do it and have a fun time because uh, this is what makes us human. So, Scott, thanks, man. I hope you have an amazing day, dude. Thank you. It's great to be here for the last uh, hour and a half. Fun. Yeah, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. 